right, Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau and also he cometh to meet thee and 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camel into two bands, and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saith unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And he lodged there that same night, and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau his brother, two hundred she-goats and twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, twenty milk camels with their colts, forty kine and ten bulls, twenty she-asses and ten foals. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, Every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, Pass over before me and put a a space between drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When he saw my brother meeteth thee and askest thee, saying, Whose art thou and whither goest thou? And whose are these before thee? Then shalt thou say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my Lord Esau. And behold, also He is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I will see his face. Peradventure he will accept of me. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might appreciate the eternality of your gospel, that thou hast done everything to present thyself before the Lord on our behalf, that we might be accepted of him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning... The title of the sermon is Christ, the present that goes before us. Um, We have heard the gospel already twice this morning through the hymns that uh, we sang, and my desire is that we'll hear it three more times before um, we're done. Four more times if you count the last hymn, but I intend to, by God's grace, present 
the uh, gospel three different ways this morning. I want to talk briefly about something that was said in Genesis chapter 31, where the word prisoner comes up, and I want to see the gospel in that. We're going to talk about verses 1 in Genesis 32 and the last verse in Genesis 31, where the issue of a place is set before us. And then we're going to talk about the present that we just read about here that Jacob presents before his brother Esau, goes before him. So prisoner, place, and present, we're going to talk about those things this morning. So you'll recall back in Genesis chapter 31 that the Lord had come unto um, Jacob and told him that he needed to go home. And so he'd been laboring for, with Jacob for 30, excuse me, for 20 years, and he'd reached a point where he had lost favor in Laban's sight because Laban figured out that all of his wealth and glory was transferring from himself to um, his son-in-law, Jacob. And so he was not happy with Jacob, and uh, even though he had tried to deceive Jacob a number of times, changing his wages, the Lord, of course, was teaching Jacob something about his own heart in this process. And uh, nevertheless, it was time for him to go home. And so he pulled up stakes rather quickly, took his wives, his children, and all of his cattle, and he um, hastily left for um, his home country. In verse 26 and verse 27 of Genesis 31, we read, Laban comes unto Jacob. He's uh, rather angry with him. He says, what hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword. Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me and didst not tell me? So I want to take a look at that for just a minute here because I want us to appreciate the gospel in that in so much as what the Lord has done uh, with us, in so much as he has taken us away from where we were when we were in this world and we were subject to the dominion of Satan. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, Um, where the Lord sets that before us. There was once an occasion, once a time, when all of us did the things that Satan wanted us to do. He's the prince of the power of the air, the Lord says, and that we were dead in trespasses and sins. In verse 2 of Ephesians 2, he says that we're in times past, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So once upon a time, we were subject to Satan's dominion, like Jacob and all his flocks were subordinate to Laban. And when the time came for, a Lab- for Jacob to leave, why well, he picked up camp and he left rather quickly. Now, through the resurrection of Christ, everybody that is in Christ was resurrected with him. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us, mean made us alive together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. In verse 6 he says, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So with the resurrection of Christ, when he had um, satisfied the uh, wrath of God, when he had uh, paid our redemption, when he had redeemed us, all of the saints that would ever be in Christ from that time backwards At the present time and that time looking forward, everybody was resurrected with Christ at the same time and was taken from the dominion of Satan directly into the kingdom of light and are ever present with the Lord and were resurrected with him. And so we see in Ephesians 4, 8, this language about taking captivity captive. We were captive of Satan. We are now captive of Christ. In verse 8 of Ephesians 4, the Lord says, 
Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended on high, which I just read there, he led captivity captive and hath given gifts unto men. Now, what gifts did he give unto men? Well, certainly he gave them the gift of eternal life, but he also gave them gifts so that they might minister in um, the Lord's church as the gospel goes forth. Now, apprehending and appreciating this concept of being a prisoner of the Lord, the apostle Paul refers to himself in a number of places as the prisoner of the Lord. And so some of the commentators will say, well, yeah, that's true in a, in a literal historical sense because at, at, at a latter point in his ministry, he was um, held in uh, house prison in the city of Rome. And so they want to put simply a superficial spin and understanding of it. But that's not the language that the Apostle Paul uses of himself. Um, in Ephesians 3, 1, he says, for this cause, in other words, for the cause for the furtherance of the gospel, he says, I, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of the Romans, that he's a prisoner of the Romans for the convenience of Christ, but he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles' sakes. He uses the same language in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I therefore, the prisoner, actually the word is in Greek is in, in the Lord. So he's a prisoner of the Lord, he's a prisoner in the Lord, um, by virtue of God's dominion over all people and particularly taking Paul unto himself. In the book of Philemon, he uses that term on two occasions. In verse 1, he says, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, he says, um, Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech you, being such a one as Paul the agent, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he refers to himself on a number of places as the prisoner of Christ. And so that's something that we should appreciate, that we are all prisoners of Christ. We will do what he wants us to do. We will be obedient to him because he is the keeper of us as our prison guard. And I want to use that language, and I am using that language intentionally, so that we would appreciate the gospel in that, particularly when we look in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, you'll recall, gives the, um, the history of the church going out from uh, Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then the uh, ends of the world. And in there, we can uh, pick up this appreciation of the Roman law with respect to how the Romans treated their prisoners. In Acts chapter 12, you'll recall, that's where Herod has slain James, and he thinks to do a service to the people because they appreciated him taking James and, and killing him. And so he um, takes the apostle Peter and takes him prisoner as well. And uh, when the occasion comes when he's going to take Peter out of prison and kill him, Peter is no longer there because the Lord has opened the gates and has set him free. Peter had been um, guarded by four uh, quadrillions of quantarons of um, soldiers, which means that there are four watches and each watch consists of four people. Two people are in the prison with him, and two people are watching the door. So Herod calls for him to be brought from prison, that he will kill him, and he's not to be found anywhere. So what does Herod do? In verse 19 of Acts chapter 12, it says, And when Herod had sought for him, sought for Peter, and found him not, he examined the keepers. In other words, which of you four sixteen who were guarding him let him get away? So he examines the keepers, and he commanded that they should be put to death. So if you were the keeper of a prisoner and the prisoner got away, you were held responsible for it and you were paid with that with your life. You were killed for it. In Acts chapter 16, 
You'll recall the occasion there. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. They were in a Roman prison. And um, there's a great earthquake. They are singing hymns, uh, psalms, and they are praying at night. And there's an earthquake. And um, the, their fetters are broken free. And um, the keeper of the prison, who was waking out of his sleep, you read about that in verse 27, he says, and he sees the prison doors are open. And he draws out his knife, or draws out his sword, rather, and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. So he understands Roman law. He's the keeper of the prisoners. The prisoners are gone. What's to be done? He's going to pay with his life, so why wait for you know, his um, centurion commander to come to him? Why not just fall on your sword right then and there? But um, the prisoners have not left. We read in verse 28, um, where the Apostle Paul says, he cried out with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling. Obviously, he's afraid because if they're not all there, then he's a dead man. He came in trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. Uh, he brought them out and said, the most profound question in the scriptures, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to no longer be under the wrath of God? The answer is very simple. The Lord says in verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's the simplest statement anywhere in the Scripture that has to do with what is required for salvation. Simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But the Lord is teaching us something here. He's teaching us the gospel in terms of the Romans' rules um, around incarceration. Last example we see is in the book of Acts chapter 20, chapter 27, where Paul is again a prisoner. He's being taken to Rome by way of a ship, and he's going to work his way around the Mediterranean. And the seas are against them, and they're fixing to be shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And uh, the um, Roman centurions, the guards, are very nervous that in this shipwreck that some of the prisoners are going to escape. So what's the simple solution? Kill all the prisoners. And so that's what they um, think to do. Um, but the, um, it says in verse 42 of Acts 27, it says, And the soldier's counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. So again, we see this principle of substitution, that either the prisoner is going to die or the prison keeper is going to die. One or the other is going to pay for the escape of the prisoners. So what I'm sharing with you here in terms of the gospel is this. So long as Christ is alive, and he is God in flesh. He will never die. You will never escape from him. I don't care what you do, doesn't matter what sins you commit, if you are a prisoner of Jesus Christ, you will get to glory. And that's where he is taking us. He's taking us to the Father. And so irrespective of how ratty our lives are, and we see lots of ratty people in the scripture, and that's why the Lord sets these people before us, is so that we can see how their lives went, what things they suffered, what the remedy was for their difficulties, but that Christ, who is our keeper, will indeed get every one of his prisoners to glory. So we can appreciate that when we see that in uh, these scriptures. Now, so there's the gospel in that one uh, simple statement that Laban makes there in Genesis chapter 31. But now let's look at Genesis chapter 32. And I want to talk about this idea of Jacob went on his way. And so... It's interesting, God uses such interesting language. He makes distinctions between things. In the last chapter of verse 32 and verse 51, it talks about Laban. Laban and Jacob have come together on the mount, and um, they've come up with a covenant. 
and uh, they've come to an agreement, and Laban now is departing, and Jacob is going to depart. So if I had been the author of this, I would have said, well, Laban departed and went on to his place, and Jacob went on to his place, but they go, God uses different languages here, different words, rather. In verse 55, it says, Laban departed and returned unto his place. In verse 1, Jacob went on his way. And so, what does it mean to go on your way? What does it mean to be in the way? And what does it mean to go to your place? And God uses this language for us so that we would appreciate the gospel and what things Christ has done for us. So, Laban returned unto his place. I would uh, say to you that Laban is not, has not been chosen by God, so he is going not to a place prepared for him by Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, there's a vision given us of um, the screens are pulled back and we are seeing in an eternal um, venue. Um, it says, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, obviously that's Christ. He's the judge of all, all people. And him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. There was no place for them because Christ did not go to the cross and prepare a place for them. So there was no place for them. So Laban is returning to his place. He's not returning to a place that Christ might have prepared for him. So the Lord brings all this language together in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6. When he's speaking to his disciples and to us as well, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, where did he go to prepare a place? He went to the cross. That is where he went to prepare a place for us. Verse 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way you know. There's that word, the way. There's that language, the way, which we're seeing here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 32. And the way you know. Verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, even though Christ has told him a number of times he's not understanding it. And how can we know the way? Well, he would have known the way if he'd been reading his Old Testament, because you'll recall in the Old Testament there were six cities of refuge three on each side of the Jordan River. And if a man were to commit manslaughter, in other words, if he killed somebody accidentally, he's supposed to flee in the way to get to the city of refuge. The Lord's teaching us something that whatever your sins are, you need to flee to Christ and there you will be safe. So Thomas again saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the Lord is teaching his disciples and us that Jesus himself, Jesus the Christ, is the way to the place, and that place, of course, is eternal life in the Father. And so I want us to appreciate in verse 1 here of Genesis 32 that Jacob went on his, quote, his way to his father's house, 
and he's going there in peace. And that was what God said he would do, and that was what was set up all the way back in Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 20, um, Jacob had said, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, God has done all of those things for Jacob, so that I come again to my father's house again in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And so what does all of this mean to us? Is that Jacob's way, his way, is the way. It's God's way. It's all the same, and it's leading to eternal life. And to return to his father's house in peace is tantamount to saying about us, going to our heavenly Father in peace. And that we will do through Jesus Christ, who is the way. And he's keeping us in the way and leading us in the way and sometimes that way, as I've said six ways to Sunday, is a very uh, tumultuous and bumpy way. It's a bumpy way. Anybody who walks uh, in the Lord for any length of time can look back on their life and see how difficult it has been to stay in the way, but the Lord will keep you in the way to get you to glory. And so the notion of that language of the way carries forward into the New Testament where we learn that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. They weren't originally called Christians, and obviously we take the name as Christians because we're united with Christ. Just like when I got married, my wife took my name. When I became um, a believer, I became a Christian, I took Christ's name with, on me to show that he is my husband and I am united with him. So initially, they were said to be of that way. They were said to be of the way. And so that uh, we would appreciate that to be in the way is to be being um, shepherded by Christ and that he will take us to the heavenly father in peace. So that language carries all the way through the scriptures. And so we should be sensitive of that, that for Jacob to be on his way is to be that he's being led by the Lord and taking um, that he will go to his father's house in peace. Now, um, as I'm moving through here, I want us to appreciate um, other portions of the gospel. So again, Laban returns to his place, and Jacob goes on his way. And the next thing he sees in verse 2 is an angelic host. And I think you should appreciate what a vision that was to see a host of angels. We don't have visions anymore, and we don't have dreams anymore. God doesn't come and talk to you in secret and give you a special message. We have the Bible, but God gives him here an angelic host, and he names the place Mahanam, which means two hosts. And there are two hosts. There's God's host, and he's fixing to face Esau's host. And that host of Esau has given him a great deal of concern. But one of the things that we should appreciate is the, um, is the scope of the eternal nature of what is revealed to us in the Bible. We tend to live in the flesh, and we tend to believe uh, the only those things that we can see, the things that we hear with our um, fleshy ears, and the things that we can touch. But there is an entire spiritual realm that ever compass about us that we don't see and that we don't necessarily appreciate. We think that our lives are limited to the scope of perhaps 80 years or something more or something less, and that um, there is nothing beyond that. But there is indeed an eternality of, um, of reality. 
The Bible tells us that those things that are um, visible are temporal. In other words, if you can see it, it's only a temporal thing. It has a very short uh, period of, exist of existence. But those things that are invisible are eternal. So this angelic host here is normally invisible, but God has, by grace, is giving him a vision so that he can see the scope of what is going on around him. We are not... Um, in this world by ourselves, of course, as a Christian, we have Christ with us, and God is over superintending all things, and there is an entire angelic host of which the Bible speaks about that um, many of which do God's direct bidding. We know that there's a bunch in, that are in rebellion, but I'm speaking of the ones here that are God's servant here. So with respect to Jacob, in terms of God giving him reassurance of his presence, God has bookended his 20-year experience in um, Paden Aram with this angelic vision. It started with when he was sleeping, he had a dream about angels ascending and descending on a ladder, which of course is, um, the ladder represents Christ. Obviously, angels don't need a ladder to go between the physical earth and the heavenly realm, but that was what the vision was. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, hey, I was the ladder, I'm the ladder, the angels ascend and descend on me. I'm the uh, host of all of the, I am the, um, um, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and so they do my bidding. So we would appreciate that God promised to Esau back in Genesis 28, 15, that he would never leave him. God said to Jacob, Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and I will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. God has made many promises to um, Jacob. He made the promises to Isaac. He made the promises to Abraham. And all of those promises belong to us as well. When Christ speaks to his disciples, he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And that is a promise that every Christian can apprehend throughout their entire existence, whether it be our temporal one, you know, in the flesh, or, we, or whether it's the eternal one. Christ is ever with us. Um, Saints that have departed are said to sleep in Jesus, meaning they are with the Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and you shall ever be present with the Lord. But the Lord gives us lots of examples in the scripture of this angelic host. He occasionally opens the people's eyes so that they can see it. I have covered these in the past, so I'll just make a brief mention of it. You'll recall when uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, that's verses 14 through 17, that the king of Syria has come. He's a little bit perturbed that he can't seem to um, defeat Israel, and they seem to know about all of his secret movements. So the question is, who's the spy? Who is telling the king of Israel what the king of Syrians' movements are? And they answer him rightly. Actually, it's Elisha, the uh, prophet of God. He knows whatever you're doing because God has told him what you're doing. So the king of Syria, being very, rather unhappy with Elisha, says that he's going to go and he's going to take Elisha prisoner. And so he compassed round about the entire city of Dothan, where Elisha happens to be. And so when he's there, Elisha, of course, is of no concern. He knows what's, what's taking place, and he's familiar with how the Lord works. And so we read that in verse 16, he says, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that, with, that be with them. In other words, we have an angelic host with us, and they have a humanly host with them, and there's more of the host with us than there are with them, which is an interesting statement because it's not like one angel can't kill a thousand human hosts. But nevertheless, he's just helping us to appreciate the strength that is with God. And it says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes, 
that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. The Lord was compassed round about his servant Elisha. And we should appreciate, as it says in the scripture, that angels are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to those that are the heirs of salvation. All Christians are heirs of salvation, and so God has compassed us about with an angelic host, um, and that angelic host serves God. They're also said to be our servants, but they're only going to service, service us, be servants of us, so much as God directs that. So again, my desire is to take our eyes off this horizontal world and lift it vertical so that we can appreciate the scope of God's salvation plan and the scope of all the things that are taking place um, in the heavenly realm. Um, there are other examples in scriptures of where we see angels um, acting um, according to God's will and according to his benefit. You'll recall that when Jesus was taken on the Mount of Olives, I should say when Jesus allowed himself to be taken when he was on the Mount of Olives, that his disciples would have drawn the sword and fought against those that were coming to take Christ. But he says to them, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to the Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. He is the captain of the host, and he would direct the, the angelic host. And if you do the math on how many um, angels that represents, it's in excess of 80,000 he can command in a moment. But he doesn't need that. It's, again, this is for our benefit that we would appreciate that he is the captain of the Sabaoth. Um, in the Gospel of John, when the Lord answers a question about who he is, everybody falls over backwards, immediately falls over backwards. So the Lord has never, uh, never stopped being um, God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it speaks about how we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness. In other words, we're not living life here unbeknownst to God. He certainly knows everything that is going on in our life. He has knowledge of it. And we should never forget that he has an active hand in our lives every step of the way. It doesn't bring me a great deal of comfort to know that God knows what's happening to me, you know, that somebody might beat me up. But it does bring me comfort to know that what he has ordained in my life, he has ordained for my good, that he's very active in that, that process. Um, I would never account or attribute sin to him, but I would account or attribute whatever happens to me as having come from his hand because he certainly could have restrained the sin in my own hand or restrained the sin in another person's hand. Sometimes he chooses to do that and sometimes he chooses not to do that. But he is ever sovereign over all of the affairs of men. And so we're going to see that also as we take a look here as we move to the um, second uh, section of the gospel. The first being this prisoner issue and the second about um, Jacob going on his way, being in the way that the Lord is leading him to his father's house in, in peace. So as we continue in here, um, I want us to appreciate that Jacob has had this angelic vision, but what he is not going to do is just sit there and go, well, I guess I've got this angelic host behind me, so I don't really need to do anything. But he's going to behave himself in, in such a manner as to try to... Um, um, answer Esau's anger and his wrath. And he does need to deal with that. So as he, in verse 3, we can appreciate that he knows that his brother is in the country of Seir, that he's in the land of um, Edom. 
And so God has somehow revealed that to him, and so he's going to conduct himself in such a way that he's going to deal with his brother here. So he's got to deal with his brother. Now you recall that his brother is the firstborn, and Jacob uh, bought his brother's birthright, and he um, swindled his brother through deception out of his father's blessing. And so his brother comforted himself, purposing to kill him. Esau comforted himself, and we've all been angry at somebody to the point where we start to contemplate murdering them in our mind and in our heart, and that brings us some sense of comfort as we contrive revenge against them. So for 20 years, Esau has been nursing this anger and resentment towards his brother Jacob, and Jacob knows that, and he's got to deal with it as he's coming back from Padan Aram down to his father's land. So he can't just walk up and act like nothing has happened because something has happened. As I mentioned, he stole his uh, sons, he stole his brother's um, blessing. Now, so what does he do? He sends messengers ahead of him to sort of ascertain Esau's mood and present disposition towards him. Now, what we appreciate is that God has providentially prospered Esau just as he said he was going to prosper him, even though he didn't get the blessing, he still got material blessings. Jacob is getting eternal spiritual blessings, and Esau is only getting material blessings. And it's the eternal blessings we want. You can look at a person's life and see no apparent physical blessings, but it's the eternal blessings that, that matter and that are important. And so God has given Esau some material blessings, and he has moved him away from Jacob's father's house. So though he's his twin brother, he has moved providentially Esau out away from their father's house. Um, and so Jacob is sending him a message, and Jacob is saying how the Lord has prospered him for whatever reason to perhaps uh, suggest to him that, you know, I don't really need the blessings of Jacob, of, uh, Isaac, my father. I don't need to inherit all those things. God has prospered me, and I've got enough stuff all by my own right. But whatever the reason is, he does send it to him. And so um, we can also appreciate from what God had said would happen that Esau was prophesied that he would bow to Jacob. God has said that Jacob's going to rule and Esau is going to bow to you. But that's not how he approaches here. He approaches his brother very respectfully and he gives him a soft answer with his salutations um, he refers to him as my Lord in verse 4 and verse 5, and that's a very um, polite and proper salutation. So he understands that his brother is angry with him, and he's putting into play what Proverbs 15.1 says. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath. A soft answer turneth away wrath. So if someone's angry at you, whether it's just or unjust, it's best to deal with them in a soft voice. Deal with it in a nice way, and their anger will just melt away because, one, God says it, that will happen, and also, of course, that is human nature. It just takes the steam right out of their kettle. Ecclesiastes 10.4 says that yielding pacifieth great offenses. Jacob has committed great offenses against his brother. And so to come to him with a contrite and humble and yielding heart and spirit is going to um, serve him very well. And so Jacob does those things. He knows that he has done wrong. And so um, he understands he does, has done wrong by virtue of the 20 years he has served Laban. 
Laban has swindled him. Laban has lied to him. Laban has deceived him. Laban has done to him the things that he had done to, that Jacob had done to his brother Esau. Now, as I'm telling you this, you should be thinking in your heart, what have I done to cheat, swindle, steal, and lie to God? Because that's how this, what this is set before us here. So he comes with a soft heart, um, and he hears that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. He's not bringing a welcome wagon with 400 men. Obviously, Esau is still angry at him. You don't send 400 men to welcome, to welcome your brother. Um, so... We read in verse 7 that Jacob, not knowing what his brother's intents are, but perceives they're not peaceably toward him, it says he was greatly afraid and he was distressed. Greatly afraid and distressed. He fears harm to himself, fears harm to his wives, to his children, and that his flocks will all be taken. It says that he is uh, distressed, which means he's straightened and narrowed. He's very tight about this. I don't, he does not know what to do here. So what he doesn't say is, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That's a true statement, but that's not where his heart is, and that's not where his mind is. At least that's not where it is yet. He does not think upon the angelic host at this time. He doesn't know what to do, nor does he think of the Lord of hosts, at least yet. The first thing he does is think of a defensive maneuver and splits his uh, flocks into two hosts, thinking that one might escape. He says that in verse 8, if Esau come unto the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So that sounds like a, a prudent thing to do. You know, I'll just, I got a huge flock, I'll split them, and oh, one half will get away. But that's not really what is going to happen because all it does is delay the inevitable. He's going to overtake the first flock, he's going to take all that, and his 400 men, and they're going to again go get the next group. It's not going to work out. It's, uh, it's not really a very helpful plan. Next section, and I'm not going to cover this today, God is going to, uh, you know, he touches his thigh and takes it out of joint, so Jacob's not even going to be able to flee. Jacob's going to be forced to trust into God. So after he works through this in his heart and gets things figured out that he cannot run from Esau any more than he could outrun Laban, because he didn't, um, he's got his wives, his children, his flocks, and he's in a straight place. He's got nowhere to turn except to God. He's got no place to turn except to God. And I want us to appreciate that. And the reality of it is we don't either. The first thing we do is we always try to work out our problems uh, using rational thought process, and we try to work out our own plans. Um, and if God is gracious to us, he'll put us in a corner so we can learn that we can't do that and it will really um, not avail us. We have to turn to God just as he has to turn to God. And so when we have all of our troubles in life, and there's no greater trouble than our sin, because the wages of sin is death. There's no getting out of that. There's no fleeing from God from that. You are going to face the judgment throne. Because Scripture says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So where does a person go when they know they're going to be judged by the judge, but to the judge? That's where you go. You go to Christ. And so, uh, and sue for his mercy, and we know that the Lord is merciful if we will go to him. And Jacob is going to do that next. He's going to, after he figures out that there's no place to turn except for to God, he's going to pray in verses 9 through 12. What I want us to appreciate about this prayer, first thing is this, how short it is. It only takes a few seconds to read it. We tend to think that we have to have long speech before God. He knows what's in our hearts. A simple prayer 
is all that is required. And we always wonder if God hears our prayers and he hears the prayers of all of these saints. And so with this uh, prayer here, um, in verses 9, I'm going to read it. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saith unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. So he's praying to the God that has come to him and spoken with him in that dream that he had um, at uh, Bethel. And he makes a very simple prayer um, that is there. But we've talked about this in the past. Notice the language in there. He doesn't yet own God. God is this thing that is yet outside of him, but he knows that God was very active in Abraham's life, his grandfather, and Isaac's life, his own father. He knows that God was active in their life, and they owned him as God. Later, Jacob is going to own him as God, but I want you to appreciate, in a person's walk, they go from a place of not knowing God to sometimes this place of, well, I, I feel like I have a relationship with him. Evidently, he's got a relationship with me, but I don't know that I have a relationship with him. So they're in this kind of a nebulous phase. For some people, it's instant, like the Apostle Paul, but for a lot of people, it's not. They're in this place of, I don't know him, I don't know anything about him, but my parents seem to know him. And then they start to feel like they're underneath the umbrella of that. And then finally, they're going to get where they own God to themselves. And so sometimes that's how Christ comes to you. And that's how he's coming to Jacob. We have his life set before us, um, all of the good, bad, and the ugly, and his relationship with the Lord from unknowing to thinking he knows to definitely having a relationship with him. So as he continues in here, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. He acknowledges the fact that he's a sinner, and so this is a confession. This is an understanding and appreciation of who he is and who he has been. And he acknowledges that when he got run out of Dodge, when he is, uh, fled from his brother Esau, who comforted himself to kill him, when he left, he had nothing but a staff in his hand, and 20 years later, he, has, he is very, very wealthy in terms of the flocks that he has. He's got, uh, at this point, he has 11 children, um, and um, God has truly blessed him. And he acknowledges that it came from God because he knows that Laban tried to cheat him, and it doesn't matter what Laban did, God still prospered Jacob every step of the way. Verse 11, now, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So in verse 10, we see a simple confession. And the second thing we see in verse 10 is an acknowledgement of God's providence. In verse 11, we see a prayer for deliverance and preservation. And in verse 12, we see a reiteration of God's promises back to God. It's a statement of God's will towards Jacob that God revealed to him in Genesis 28. Now, do you think you need to remind God of his promises like he's forgotten about what those promises are? Or do you think that really what God is doing, he wants us to bring his promises to our heart and to our mind so that we will take comfort in, him, in those promises because God is the one who is ever faithful. Obviously, prayer is for our benefit to shape our will to the will of God. 
And so when we pray to God, um, there are basically two, three answers. Yes, it'll happen right now. No, it's not going to happen, or it might happen in a while. We might have to be very patient. Um, the finest example of that is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays um, that if it be possible to remove this cup from me, in other words, if it's possible that I don't have to go to the cross and suffer these things, uh, but not my will, but thy will be done. And the answer was, no, it's not possible. This is the only way, and that's the way you are going to go. So we need to appreciate that it's good and it's proper to uh, remind God of his promises because we're ultimately reminding ourselves of those promises. And the Bible is full of promises from beginning to end. Now, after having made this wonderful short prayer here, what does Jacob then do? Well, he's been reassured by God, by this angelic host in, in verse um, 2. And so after he prays, he does what we should all do. It says he lodges there that night. He stops. And he's going to listen. He's not going to flee. He's not moving forward. He's not moving backwards. And so must we do this, too, when we pray to God, as we just need to kind of stop and think about what things the Lord might have placed upon our heart. Just don't take any action in and of yourself. Just wait and rest in the Lord and trust that he will work out things for your good. But not according to your timetable, but he'll take care of you. Lots of promises to do that. So... He uses good, he moves forward. Then once he moves forward here, he uses good judgment. And it says here that he is going to make a present to Esau. Now, he's going to give Esau 580 animals total, 580. And yet it's singular here, present. It's a singular. I would have said presents if I'd been writing the Bible, but I didn't write it. So he gives 580 um, animals to his brother Esau. On verse 16 through 21, I'm going to read that again, and I want us to pay attention as to how this is taking place. In verse 16, we read, And he delivered them, that would be the present, into the hand of his servants, many servants, that's plural, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me, and put a space between drove and drove. There are five droves. He's sending the present in five waves. There's going to be all the animals and a servant. Then there's going to be a space. Then he's going to do it again five times. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When he saw my brother meeteth thee and askest thee, saying, Whose art thou? And whither goest thou? And whose art these before thee? Then shall they say, Here's how you're going to answer Esau when, he, when you come up to him. They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present, singular, sent unto thy, my Lord Esau, and behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the droves, five droves, saying, Of this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. And say ye, moreover, behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward, I will see his face. Peradventure, he will accept of me. So went the present, singular, over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. Now, interestingly enough, the word present up there in verse 18 and these other places that we see it here is usually translated as the word offering. 
It first appears in Genesis chapter 4 when Abel makes an offering unto God. It's all over the book of Leviticus covering every one of the offerings that is set before us in Leviticus. So what is his intention? His intention is that he would be delivered from the hand of Esau. That's what we read about in verse 11. So where does he get, or where did he get the present from that he offers to Esau? He came from God. As he acknowledged it, that he, what he received came to him from the hand of God. So what is he doing? He's offering up a present that he didn't purchase. It's not a present that he paid for. It's a present that was given to him by God. Now, over in verse 30 of Genesis 32, which I didn't read, Jacob, we know, is going to wrestle with God, and he's going to make the statement, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. I'm going to, I saw God face to face, and my life is preserved. What does it take to see God face to face and have your life preserved? You have to send a present before you. That's the lesson that's set before us here. That's what he says about his brother Esau, that his life would be preserved, and he could see his face. So what the Lord is setting up here for us is an appreciation and an understanding of the gospel so that we would appreciate that just as Jacob wants to see his brother face to face and have his life preserved, he's got to send a present over before him. If you want to see God face to face, you have to send a present before you and a present that you didn't work for, a present that was given to you. And what was that present? Or I should say, who was that present that goes before us? It's Christ himself. God's face must be covered with Christ before he will look upon your face. And when he looks upon your face with Christ having gone before you, what does he see? He sees his son Christ in you. And Christ in you, of course, Christ did everything to satisfy his father on behalf of us. If you look at these animals here, you'll notice that they're conspicuously, some of them are unclean animals, and some of them are clean animals, and that represents who we are when we come before the Lord. We are clean in so much as Christ is in us, because we are a partaker of the divine nature, but we are unclean in so much as that um, sin resides in um, the flesh. And so it is with Christ, our sins were imputed to him, and the righteousness of God was imputed to us. And so when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, our sins having been imputed to his son, Jesus Christ, who then was, as the offering for sin, was both clean and unclean from God's perspective because he was paying the penalty of our sin, which had been imputed to him. So, and that gift we give to him, where did we get Christ? God gave him to us. It was a present from God that we then present back to God. So, big picture here in terms of what we see between Jacob and Esau is that if you would appease the wrath of God, if you would find grace in the sight of your Lord, that's verse 8, if you would see the face of God and have him pleased to you, that's verse 10, you must have Christ go before you. And so that is the gospel lesson that is set before us this morning. And that I want us to appreciate that no matter how ratty your life is, and Jacob had a ratty life, and his kids are ratty, and if you look through the um, scope of Scripture, you'll see one ratty person after another. <laughs> Nevertheless, if Christ went before them for those particular people, then God was pleased with them, and they were able to see God face to face by virtue of the work of Christ 
that was imputed to them and given to them. So I pray that that would be the case for all of us here, that when we go to be before the Lord, Christ will have gone before us and we shall ever be with him in glory. Amen. Amen.